Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this podcast, I'm looking forward to discussing what we can learn from gaming and games with Gareth Woods, who ranks as one of the most interesting people I know. I even included his story in my book, Future Proof Your Child, because he is a fascinating case study in how to build a meaningful portfolio of experiences in a world where career security and job security are increasingly becoming a thing of the past. Gareth is a comedian, a gamer, business owner, father, and husband. We met when we were both weekly subject matter experts for years on the Expresso Morning Show, where Gareth was the gaming guru and I the parenting expert. Gareth is a leading expert in the South African esports and gaming industry, having founded Good Game Well Played, South Africa's first gaming and esports marketing agency, and Gaming Ventures, a marketing and sponsorship consultancy dedicated to assisting brands entering the gaming industry. He's been featured in Forbes Africa, Finweek, Mags on Media, Huffington Post, and the International Journal of Strategic Marketing. He's currently the marketing director at Hearthsim, a New York-based gaming analytics company. Gareth recently published the book, Go Play Inside, What Video Games Can Teach Us About the Game of Life. As a comedian, he has featured on Comedy Central, Late Night News, with Luis Ogola and even opened for Trevor Noah on his debut show, Daywalker, after winning the 5FM National Comedy Talent Search. One thing for sure is that Gareth knows how to have fun, read trends, and take full responsibility for his choices in a fast-changing world. Gareth, congratulations on the publication of your book and welcome to the Win at Work and Life podcast with Nikki Bush. Yes, thanks so much. It's been quite a journey and I know you've uh, been witness to a lot of that, uh, it seems like the last five years or so. Yeah, it's been an absolute privilege to journey with you to see what you've done, how you've got there and really how you've taken your passion for gaming to a new place uh, where you're actually educating people about the inside track, the stuff we don't know about gaming. So before we get into gaming and what you've learned from gaming, sure. I'd love you to give our listeners a quick synopsis of your post-matric academic and career history, just as a wow. reference point before, okay. before we get into the, the nitty gritty, just because cool. I find it fascinating. And I think anybody who's listening, who has probably got children of whatever age mm. will find it fascinating because I always look at you as being quite a forerunner in mitigating the risks of a very uncertain future with few guarantees. Mm. And I often say to people, you know, careers are not built by going from A to Z anymore. You go from A to B to H to C to Z. And mm. I think you have epitomized that, but you've made it work. So just give us a quick sure. high level. Sure. It's quite a long story. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I just want to add to that point. You're saying we plan these careers from like A to Z or A to B or whatever. But the irony is, is that how boring everything would be if it were A to Z. I mean, you were witness to a speech I did about on this topic of going, when we finish our life, we want to look back and go, whoa, what a roller coaster ride. And I had the strength to overcome it and what I learned to get through it. Because that's what makes a good story. That's what makes a good movie. That's what makes a great game. 
if you told me like, yeah, I studied this and then I did the job that I studied for for 40 years and then I retired. It's like a cool, <laughs> cool story, you know? What's um, the fun so, in that? <laughs> yeah, 100%. We, we want tension. We want to grow from it. Um, so yeah, to, to answer your question, I left high school as a, you know, a good academic um, and I uh, went into university to study a BSc LLB because I was going to be a patents attorney. So I finished there with an on my LLB and an honors in biotechnology, ready to go become a lawyer. Realized that law was not Ellie McBeal or suits or whatever, and was actually what terribly boring. <laughs> and mostly just photocopying. And so I, at the time, had entered an internship at Unilever. They had a program called the IBMC, the Interactive Business Management Challenge. And they were like, well done, we'd love to give you a job in supply chain. Cue me going to Google, what is supply chain? And um, working out what that was, got a job in demand forecasting. And it was one of those things of like, I never studied to do this, but I had the skills, I guess, or the, the mindset to be able to do the job. And it was a case of like, cool, I'm good at this. It doesn't blow my hair back. Where do I want to go? And then what was the gap in between? So from there, I, be, I moved into what's called category marketing. And then from there, I always wanted to be a marketer. I wanted to be a brand manager because that looked like the stuff I could, you know, in a gaming term, like do some damage. Like that's where I could really make a difference. And um, applied, but was always like, oh, but your background, you don't have a marketing background. You've got a law background. You've got a science background. You should be in like a lab or in the factory at the very least. Um, left for a job in Cape Town at Brandhouse, which was Heineken and Diageo before the split uh, in, in marketing procurement. So getting closer to marketing, but like in procurement. So you're still like very numbers-based. You're, you're buying assets and not for the marketing purposes. A lot of negotiations and all that. So still using those numeracy skills, but not being allowed to be a, a marketing manager yet. Um, not a boss. Then, not a boss yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I was in like a management position, but it wasn't like in marketing yet where I wanted to be. And then Q, uh, they moved to Joburg. I didn't want to be in, in Joburg. Ironically enough, in the future, I ended up in being in Joburg. But uh, I take a job at Take-A-Lot. Realized within the first day of being there, not for me, culture was not, something that like appealed to me so I quit literally two weeks before my son was born and I remember my boss when I quit saying but you're about to have a kid how can you just quit your job now and it was weird for me because I'm going that's the motivation for why I'm quitting because I can't have this conversation with him one day and go you know Ethan I really just what do what you want to do like be passionate about and and study and work at what you want to work at and he goes, because you always wanted to be a department manager, take a lot, right, Dad? Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what I always wanted was that. And and realizing that like I can't have that conversation. I don't want to lie to him about like me selling short what I want to be doing for a safe job. Um, and so yeah, cue my wife going on maternity leave, me taking like from whatever I was earning to zero. I think we went to like total sum 20% of our of our earning before I quit. Um I start this business, uh, gaming venture. Sorry, first uh, good game I played because I, I definitely saw that there was this gap between the skill I had of like marketing and and sponsorships and all the stuff I'd learned through like at this stage ten years of working in corporate, but that the game like the brands either didn't understand gamers and the gamers didn't know how to market themselves to the brands properly. You know, they they just they're not seeing the value in their product. And so here I am as the Rosetta Stone or translator helping these brands work together. And, and it's been great. Last five years or so, we worked with really big brands like uh, BMW, KFC, uh, Absa, Adidas, uh, Debonairs. We even won uh, Lurie for work we did on KFC. 
Um, so really, really cool stuff we're doing. And then on an absolute moonshot, I applied for a job uh, that I saw advertised for a company that made analytics products for two of my absolute favorite games that I, you know, I play a lot of games, but these are games I sunk a lot of time into. And I thought like, oh, what the hell, let me give it a try. And next thing I know, like I've got this job based in New York, obviously a remote team and everything. I'm still here in Cape Town, but just like suddenly being catapulted into an international space just with like, it, it feels so weird to have been scrapping around uh, in South Africa, you know, to make things work. And then you, all of a sudden you, I mean, I'm having these like weird, almost fanboy moments where they're professional players who I'll just like message to tell them like, hey, we've updated this product. They're like, oh, thanks Gareth or whatever. Like, hey, um, email doesn't really work for me. Here's my like WhatsApp details or here's my Discord details. We're like private DMing each other. I'm just like, <laughs> my mind's blown because these are people like a year ago. Yeah. I'm like watching all their videos going, oh my word, this guy's like yeah. a god. <laughs> so Gareth, how old are you now? I'm 37. You're 37. Okay. So yes, I've known you actually for longer than you think, because I think you okay. were just on 30 when okay. we first met. Okay. So that makes sense. Cause I think I had the goal of writing the book by the time I'm 30. <laughs> now I roll my eyes at myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how naive, naive that was. Yeah. And not because the content wasn't there, but I, I think the self. Um, Belief. Was, yeah. I, I always believed I could do it. It was more the like the nuance of knowing how to articulate what I've been feeling. You know, it's, it's the idea of like, I needed to have Ethan. I needed to have quit my job. I needed to have gone through this stuff to realize what I've learned, but also what I can teach. Um, it, it's difficult to teach if you haven't learned the lesson yourself, if you know That's what I mean. true. And children are always your acid test. So yeah. you can have beliefs all you like until you have children. And it's only when you put those to the test that you know yeah. whether they actually work or not. So, And so I wanted to punctuate the story, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the role I do at the new job is as marketing director. So from wanting to be an assistant brand manager for 10 flipping years to suddenly just skip brand manager, like marketing manager to all the go the way to becoming basically the head of the whole entire marketing department um, because like that's what I wanted. I wanted that thing. And I understood that I didn't study the right things or have the right jobs, but okay, cool. What, what skills do I need to collect on the way to get there then? Yeah. And so I look at your journey and I think it's just such a beautiful illustration of the fact that no experience is ever wasted. Nothing is ever lost. Even sideways moves or jobs that you didn't enjoy actually help to build up what I call your talent profile. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, you know, I just am so proud of you and the journey that you have walked and the lessons that you can teach us. And in your bio, it says that if 10-year-old Gareth Woods had known what known that he would play video games and tell jokes for a living, he probably wouldn't have wasted all those years at school and university. And we've already had a little preamble conversation before this podcast, because my question is, do you think that was really a waste or did it help you to get to this point hand in glove with gaming, giving you additional credibility, perhaps? Yes. So I think that that's definitely helped me uh, in terms of the credibility that, that especially in the conservative nature of South Africans and I guess the um, suspicious nature of, of, um, of this genre, so of gaming, it definitely helps that when you can throw out your CV and go that you've been featured on all these really illustrious um, kind of publications, that you can say you've worked at the following places, that you went to the school and studied this and that. So it doesn't feel like here's this guy who 
Uh, I mean, the irony out is of nowhere. Kind of, yeah, especially. I mean, I, I, I walk in and you know uh, I've got my tattoos showing and all that sort of stuff, and a lot of them are on my CV because they're like some of the games that I've loved the most. And like for them, that in their mind is that oh, that's what gamers are like. They're these weird like tattooed like creative types. But then my CV says something else, almost that they two don't yeah. mesh. But well, in a weird way, it's actually helped me speak to both people because yes. it's like it allows me to speak to creatives because they're going, you don't seem like a suit. But then when you speak to suits, they're like, mm, you don't seem like a full-on creative. And, and I think that's the juxtaposition yeah. of being able to go, you're this translator. You're this Rosetta Stone that can kind of speak to both groups and, and understand their needs and requirements. I think I'd like to add another thought to that. And, mm -hmm. and it's this. And so if, if you uh, are an employer of young people or if you are a parent of a young person, you need to think about the fact that the world of work is looking for what we call T-thinkers. And a T-thinker is exactly what you're explaining. I mean, you qualified, qualified with a double major. You qualified in humanities or arts. What do, what do you call, what, what's legal? Oh, yeah, law is its own, its own yes. faculty, so, area. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, science and law are very different. So, so Gareth, you epitomize what the world is looking for these days, which is a tea thinker. That's what the world of work wants, is somebody who is both arts and sciences. Not one or the other, but somebody who can bridge between the two, because it adds a richness to both fields that you're not kind of deeply niched in only one thing. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it gives you a perspective, a way of thinking about things. And as mm -hmm. you say, you know, you're that translator between the two camps and, and that's what people are prepared to pay you for. So in terms of the future world of work, you've really positioned yourself amazingly well. Thanks. And I think your book really brings that across. So to anyone who hasn't read Gareth's book, Go Play Inside, Read it not just for the insights around gaming, but for the insights around how to build this kind of portfolio of meaningful experiences that create then a meaningful life and make you employable, perhaps doing the stuff that you like to do anyway. So Gareth, on to some of the key lessons sure. that you would like to share with our listeners to help them to gain this appreciation of and perhaps some insights into gaming what would you like to kick off with? I mean, there's so sure. much to talk yeah, about. I'm, I've got I mean, loads that, that I can even just say from my perspective. And in fact, maybe sure. this is the kickoff point. Cool, let's do that. Because I have spent so many years in the parenting um, field and looking at tech savvy parenting, et cetera, there was something that struck me in your book about the fact that games need to be fun. And we're always looking for a reason why there's an educational aspect to them or a mm. purpose for them. And I think that was one of the key things that actually struck me in your book. Sure. Um, is that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember being in the generation as well that like educational games were not subtle about it. They were like, this is a math game or this is a science game. And they sucked. Like you only played them because it was this or don't play them. And so you're like, oh, fine, I'll play the terrible, terrible game because it's better than not getting to play games. Um, but, but it was this heavy-handed approach to not trying to disguise learning into gaming. It was just like you're basically doing an interactive science lesson, an interactive math lesson. And so parents were kind of, their worries were kind of calm because they're going, it's clearly a lesson, good, good on us, the parents. 
but the, the irony is that like um, there's, there's this weird count counterpoint where we're trying to allow gaming if they add value as if the value is something as obtuse as they will get better at math, their hand-eye coordination will improve, their problem solvings will increase, as opposed to like, why does anything have a purpose? Why can't the purpose of something fun be to that it is fun? I mean, you're not going whenever you scroll through Netflix and find something to watch going, mm, what am I going to learn from this? Sometimes it's just like, sometimes you just need to clutch out. Sometimes you just want to be entertained. Why can't that be enough? Yeah. And so it, it's strange for me, especially given the fact that like, I mean, the whole tongue in cheek thing is with the book has been go play outside. And, you know, we flipped on its head to be inside because I think it obviously as, as a title, it gives a little bit of a like, hey, that's not the saying. It gives a bit of um, kind of knee jerk to it. But also given COVID and us all being locked inside that, you know, playing outside might not be as good for your health as, as it used to be. <laughs> but, it's, but it's always always struck me as going like, cool, so I'm playing video games and in comes a parent who goes, no, go play outside, go climb a tree. As if like, so what, what am I exactly, am I going to be learning from climbing a tree that I couldn't be learning so much more from engaging with this video game? And so it's always weird the utilitarian nature that children's play has to be. Whereas, and I'm sure you appreciate as, as a kind of, your experience in a kind of early developmental stage sometimes play is education we just don't appreciate it because we don't appreciate the immediate effect of you know when your kid is building a tower with a bunch of blocks yeah we don't appreciate the fact that they're learning three-dimensional shapes and they're learning about gravity and we're just like oh he's stuffing around with some blocks he should be you know getting a job you know like doing something meaningful yeah, yeah. so if, if we think about your book in a way, you've looked retrospectively back at your gaming journey, and you're not the best gamer in the world, you've admitted that, um, but you're a gamer because you enjoy it, but there is a lot of incidental learning yeah. and accidental learning that actually happens as a byproduct of playing games, and I think that's what your book highlights. Yeah, and, and it's been fascinating to watch the things I take for granted while watching Ethan learn to play. For example, something as simple as... Um, Mario starts a stage and I know you're going to run right. Like your character is going to move to the right of the screen because he's placed on the left, he's facing right. But for a kid, you just hand them the controller. The first couple of times they're like, which way must I go? They don't, they don't have those assumptions. And, and it almost becomes like a meme a bit, I guess, because like, you know, now, you know, if there's a character with like evil eyebrows and a frowny face, bad guy, if it's a red barrel, it will explode. It's weird how you're picking up these things and learning these things that are built on years and years and years and years of gaming, that they become tropes. But someone who comes in brand new, you know, 30 years into, you know, the foundations that they never got, and to watch them pick, them, pick these up almost instantly, but for a time, there's this lag phase of like, I don't know which way I'm going. And it's very, very mild problem solving. But the idea that you know your character must move right. He's facing right. He's, on the, he's positioned on the left-hand side of the screen. The first enemies are coming from that side. That's the direction to go. It's, it's been fascinating to watch that learning development happen. Mm, that's fascinating. So the understanding of the gameplay, you know, yeah. what things mean, what does it signal? And what must I do in response to that? So what action must I choose to take? What action do I take in this moment? Yeah. It's predicated I, I, on what I understand from the clues and the cues on the screen. Yeah, and, and I think you, you're starting to nail what I'd like to think is, is one of my favorite lessons of, of the book. 
was, I kind of call it the game of serenity prayer, is the idea that like, when you are playing Mario, and I'm using Mario obviously as a, an example because of probably the game with the most appeal that the most people have reference to. But when you're playing as Mario, that's it. You play Mario. He moves left, right, up, down. He can jump. He can shoot fireballs when he gets a power up. That is it. You don't control gravity. You don't control time. You don't control any of the enemies. Like you just control Mario. And it's weird that in the gaming space, we just appreciate that. We don't get hung up about like, how do I control time? How do I control these other elements? But in our real life, all you control is this, you know, meat robot that you're in, you know? And, and yet somehow we are so fixated on controlling everything else rather than just focusing on like making sure Mario gets from where he is to the goal that they're trying to get to. Um, mm. and, it's, and it's weird how, especially in this time where there's so much that we thought we were in control of, the economy, our jobs, all that sort of stuff, um, especially during this kind of COVID and lockdown stage that, that now um, if, you f if you kind of like turn it into a video game, you go like, what, what do I actually control? And yeah. what don't I? Yeah. All we really control is our choice and our attitude in this moment, the very yeah. next action that we take. And that's it. And I guess that in a way is what you're saying is mirrored in a video game. 100%. Hmm. So talk to us about um, some of the other lessons. You know, we've got uh, epic quests and missions yeah. that you go on in these games that are like reading a, a, a thick three-inch Ken Follett novel yeah. <laughs> that we would celebrate if our children were reading. Mm -hmm. um, but just because it's on a screen, we actually say it's a waste of time. Yeah, 100%. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the quest for, for epic achievements and all this stuff is a lesson I've learned from particularly playing difficult games is the idea that you're going, games, especially nowadays, they, they're starting to spoon feed um, players in that they kind of go, oh, uh, they've got adaptive difficulty. And so it's an idea that like, you don't know that in the background, if you're failing too often, it slowly starts tempering the, the difficulty to allow you to get through because they want you to experience as much of the game as possible. See, I come from the generation of like, you got three lives, maybe you got to continue. That was it. When you died, you started again. There was no like, would you like to resume from your previous save game? It was like, that didn't exist. You, you, you kind of restarted. And I guess what it taught me was that like, that's why when you bragged with your friends at the, you know, at the playground, oh, I got to level five. They're like, oh my word, you got to level five. What's it like? Because it's an actual achievement. It's not this thing of like, yeah, I died so many times. The game got so easy that I just walked from left to right. And then, you know, back to our previous thing of like a life that's a straight line. The, the, the most amazing achievements that I've had through gaming, if I think back, came from the most ridiculous amount of, of deaths in terms of getting there. But what I love about gaming is it's a safe environment to do so. You know, so I can die. fail and to re-strategize and go back to the drawing board and try 100%. And, and the thing is that like, I can try strategies that are like completely out the box because I, I know the rules. I know how far I can stretch them, you know, in terms of like the game, allowing it to do. So I can try different things. And the biggest punishment is that you've got to do it again. And it's, it's amazing if you can get that mindset of this is accomplishable, success is inevitable, that how much you are willing to persevere at something. Because I think the problem sometimes is we have this attitude of like, we're not even sure if this is achievable. You know, if I take something like, let's, let's go after the cure for cancer. 
like, you know, there've been breakthroughs and all that, but at this stage, no cure for cancer. And so we kind of wonder about like, is it even possible? So we throw resources, we throw people at it, we throw time, but there's not this idea that success is inevitable. Whereas like from a gaming perspective, people who game, like, and I know this from chatting to other friends, it's, it's a matter of going, we're just waiting to get the right strategy. It, success is inevitable. It's just a matter of time, skill, expertise. It's literally just a matter of those things sinking together. So whether it's the cure for COVID or cancer or world hunger or whatever, it's just a matter of putting enough resource behind it. Yeah, skills, work rate, and attitude. 100%. But I think that sometimes we go, this problem is too big. Because in a game, you know, every boss that's there, every obstacle's there is put there as a challenge to you and but you know it's overcome you know it's, you know you're able to overcome it because like why would why would they put it in the game pretty lousy game that you know has a boss at the end of the game that cannot be beaten there's no way to beat it you know yeah so everything is figureoutable in some yeah. way shape or form talk to me about this concept of it's just a game and why mm-hmm. that is just like poison to a gamer whether the gamer is 30 years old or 15 years old, yeah, yeah. years old. I, I, I think what's triggering about it is, is the word just. So I, I'm not trying to say that when you're playing a game that it's not a game. And, and I'm not trying to advocate for people who get so passionate that they break controllers, they swear at people, they become like, you know, looks like a little drug, little drug addict reaction sort of thing. I'm talking about someone being so passionate about a game that when they lose, they are sad. That when they win, they want to punch the air. They're so excited. And someone else basically undermining that passion. Because you're telling me that if someone was at a, at a music concert and it's the, the band that they want to see their whole life, they've traveled across the world to see them and they sing their song, the song that got them through pain that they proposed to their, their, you know, their girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever. Like that song that means so much to them. And they start streaming in terms of tears rolling down their face. Like, it's just music. Like... Like, what kind of reaction is that? What kind of poisonous troll-like reaction is that? Or it's just a and, job, or it's just a car. Oh, yes. it's just a job. Oh, okay, cool. cool. So you saved all your money, and you've been working tirelessly to, to buy this car. It's just a car. Like, at, at what point is do you become the person that's just, like, deflating the passions of, um, of, of this child or this person who's playing a game? And, and where I see it so often is... I'm quite proud of my love of gaming. I, I mean, I literally wear my love of it on my, on my sleeves. And when I meet someone at a dinner party and they see that like my Mario tattoo, or whatever, you start talking like, and I can see they love gaming and you can see in their body language, this relief that they get to talk about it. But then the instant side eyes of like, oh, okay, well, we can't talk about it. We're boring people, whatever. And I'm kind of like, screw other people. Like the thing that you are interested in is what makes you interesting. Like, I don't want you to censor yourself in front of me. And I'm sure you've experienced this, whether it's about gaming or something else, someone's super passionate about whatever, crypto, and they're talking your ear off about crypto. And yes, there's that line when you go, cool, I'm not as interested in this as you are. And so maybe appreciate the room. But if we're both interested in this thing, why suddenly does it become too geeky or too, like, not appropriate conversation? Like, if you're passionate about something, be passionate about it. Mm. And, and, and I, I think a lot of it starts with, people who are playing a game and are told like calm down it's just a game it's like i'm passionate about this thing i'm sad that i lost yes i'll get over it i'm very stoked that i won and yes i'll get over that too 
that this euphoria or this depression or that is part of gaming in the same way so is music so is sport i mean how many times have we watched a father swear at the spring box or <laughs> jump up and down like a mad thing driving around the block hooting you just go oh it's just a spring box oh it's just rugby like but we allow it because we're south african and it's part of our culture talking about the spring box uh, you know, they come with a support structure from physios to marketers to team management to, you know, bikineticists, whatever. The same support services apply to the gaming industry as well. And in fact, when people are thinking about career opportunities in the gaming industry, especially parents, they're only thinking of one. And that is that my child wants to become a professional gamer. Yeah. But that's only one of thousands of different options within 100%. the gaming industry. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so, so it's strange for me that we appreciate that in the sporting world and we appreciate that in the music and the movie world. Like if your kid goes, I want to get into the movie industry and you immediately know that there could be an actor, that could be hair and makeup, that could be a DOP, that could be key group. Like you've seen the credits on a movie. It's as long as probably my book and it's, it's all these jobs and all these people worked on one movie and then they move on to the next one, different teams, whatever. But that's an entire industry for one movie. It's the same in gaming. So like you, we, unfortunately, my kid wants to get into gaming. We go, oh, he wants to be a professional gamer. And like you said, we're talking about the cream, cream, cream of the cop, crop. Like I am not a professional gamer. I don't play games for a living. I have dovetailed a passion for gaming with a skill set in marketing and strategy to be able to create a career for myself. And that's as simple as going, I could do this job at other companies, but I'd rather do it in the gaming space. So mm. if your kid is a talented artist and loves gaming, well, then why aren't they designing the characters for the next game? If they're a musician and they love gaming, why not they're making the music? If, heck, if they're an accountant and they love gaming, why not try and become an accountant at one of the big gaming firms? The gaming industry is bigger financially than the movie and music industries combined, but it's not treated that way. Like mm. people kind of treat it as going, oh, if you want to get into gaming. So you either want to make games or you want to play them. What yeah. about the marketing of it? What of the, the events? What of the, like, even just in the esports space, that's the, the like competitive element. Then it becomes like traditional sports. Who's running the venues? Who's marketing? Who's coaching the teams? Who's dealing with their nutrition? Who's doing the psychology? Who's the casters and the announcers? It's okay, so sorry, stop. You're speaking a yeah. language here that most people don't understand. So <laughs> I enough. understand this because I've taken cool. the time to get to know people like you. But when you say the caster and the announcer, the caster yeah. is the sportscaster, like the, yeah. um, the, the guy on radio and TV who's literally commentating yeah, while the rugby's running. Yes, 100%. It's, it's taken so much from traditional sports in the sense of like, you've got your commentator and your, your color caster. They generally call chart casters as a kind of generic term, but then they'll throw to a panel where the guys will like analyze the, the plays and the teams and create the narratives. What happens when you've got your TV um, presenters, the panel mm. in the yeah. studio, and then you've got the guy down on the field, who's got the microphone, who's interviewing the captain yeah. and the players and the managers and whatever, and then they feed back into exactly. the TV studio. So, same so thing. I've always said that in gaming and in esports, for every one thing that's different, there are two things that are exactly the same. And the problem is too many people like see all these differences and don't give it a chance to see like, okay, how much is similar? 
Um, and so you take esports, for example. Yeah, it's weird because it's this game I don't understand. But like, okay, anchor yourself on the things you do understand. There are two teams. They have players. So far, none of this should be scary to anyone who's watched sports. Cool, there are cameras watching them. Cool, there are commentators asking them questions and telling us what's going on. I might not understand what they're saying, but I'm, I'm comfortable with how much of this is so similar to watching sports. So how different is it to me just flicking to a channel and going, hmm, I've never watched curling, for example. You know, some of these weird sports for us as South Africans, like any of the Winter Olympic sports. I've never watched long distance, like ski jumping, whatever. Like, let me try and understand the game through the commentators, through the interviews, through the players, because they create the narrative. They help the understanding of the game. And so, yeah, it's like I said, just anchor yourself in the stuff that is similar to what you do understand. And, and that, if, if I'm honest, has been a learning that I picked up from the, the years I've done comedy is just going, you enter an audience and I don't know who's going to be in the audience. It's, it's not like, you know, when you're doing Toastmasters or whatever, where you know kind of like the, the you know, population demographics and all that. You walk in on the stage and you start your opening joke and you go, cool, not landing or is landing. This kind of material is not working. But you slowly start working out what the kind of lowest common, common denominator or the connecting feature is. And that's honestly allowed me in the last five years to do what I do because I walk into a boardroom and I meet a managing director or marketing director, or whatever, and I slowly start understanding what is their connection to gaming. It might be like, oh, I've been gaming my whole life. I go, cool, this will be easy. Or it's like, I hate gaming, but I understand, you know, the kids love it because my kids are just obsessed with Fortnite. Then I go, cool. The conversation is going to be about leveraging your understanding of your kids and how much they love games to hopefully help you understand how important games are. But it's it's about connecting and understanding um, the similarities rather than the differences, I guess, mm. to, to help people understand the gaming space better. Okay, so what about, and I'm just throwing this out there in terms sure. of what we can learn uh, from gaming. Uh, you mentioned control a little bit earlier. Mm. And I think that one of the fundamental things that we as human beings are always trying to do is to create order out of chaos. 100%. Yeah physical life, in our virtual life, in our filing systems, it doesn't matter where it is, we are kind of primed to create order out of chaos. How does that relate to gaming and what you can learn from games? So I had to agree with you in terms of control. Uh, I think that for the longest time, you could probably benchmark how advanced the civilization is based on how much is under the control. So if you take, you know, go back thousands of years, were animals under our control? You know, did we have animal husbandry? Uh, were we strong in terms of metallurgy and our ability to use metals for, you know, our own purposes? And as we went through the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and all these sorts of things, we had more things under our control. And that's how you could almost tell how advanced the civilization is. Teleport us to 10,000 years from now when we can control time and the weather, we'll go, we're a more advanced civilization because we can control more control is almost like the barometer for how advanced we are as a civilization but i do feel like within control people have their own kind of like center point in terms of like their balance of control and chaos like how prone people are how much chaos they like in their life because ironically enough some people you know anarchists for example want as much chaos as possible they like live and breathe it um, where some people want more control uh, and I think within gaming, it, you know, if I go back to my Mario example, it, it's very much this idea of going, understanding what is under control and what isn't under control. 
Um, I, I mean, I don't want to harp too much on this because I do feel like we, we, we did kind of balance it. But I think within that, there are different games that suit different personality types based on that. So, for example, like if you're the kind of person that loves chaos, multiplayer games are probably more something that you enjoy doing because the non-controllable element is even more random because you're not playing against an algorithm or an AI. You are playing against other human beings who are going to do stupid things <laughs> that aren't the perfect move. And in that is actually the difficulty because when you're playing against what we call PVE games, player versus environment, you just got to master the environment and then you become master of the environment. Whereas when you're playing against other people, you can expect them to do what you know would be the best thing to do against you. But when they do something else, you're just like, whoa, this is completely different. That's a PVP, player versus player environment, but far more chaotic. But isn't that the nature of games in general? You think about a traditional classic like chess. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what moves you want to make and you think you know what the other guy is going to do and then he doesn't do it. And then it yes. messes up the whole game plan. You've got to try another strategy. 100%. And in essence, what you're talking about in those multiplayer games, which are happening in real time, online in real time, mm is that you having to be responsive to, to the chaos that's going on and yep. you've got to make your next best move. Uh, and in some games, it's deeply strategic. Yep. And you have to have many hours under the belt to actually get a sense of what this game is all about. Like I go back to my thick historical novel. Yeah. Uh, you can't pick it up in the middle of the novel and expect to know what's going on. You actually have to start from the beginning. And there's layer upon layer of experiences and knowledge about the characters and about the environment that you need to know in order to play the game. Yeah. And there's so much repetition, like with learning anything in real life, climbing a ladder, using a swing, kicking a ball, you only get really good if you commit to practice, repetition, yeah. repetition. And you talk about the fact that in most games require at least 30 to 100 hours, but your two favorite games that you're not even a master at, but that you're better at and have more yeah. interest in Dota, for Dota 2, for example, 7,000 hours under the belt? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I'm a pretty average player at it, but... It's, it's one of those games where, you know, in terms of the propensity towards chaos or order, very chaotic in terms of like just the, the variations, the fact that there are 100 or 110 characters to play. My team chooses five. I don't control what my teammates choose, especially when we're not a team. We are just five strangers bundled together versus five other strangers that hopefully we've been matched well by the system. But like I have to, there's so much social engineering that happens in terms of going cool i want to give advice to my teammate but i can't come across as being too authoritarian because next thing they go uh, screw you i've also got seven thousand out of this game i know how to play it and then suddenly i have six enemies against and only three teammates because i've turned one of my teammates into an enemy and so that social i mean i've often played with friends who like we play he's a very good player he will then come down from a lofty height at one player and our team is doing really badly and i'll have to like message him on the private going you're not helping, you're going to turn this guy against us. And this is a teammate. Like the game's hard enough with five enemies, let alone six enemies. And but it's this kind of social, and I love that element to it. Because for me, this like it's a game within a game. It's not only the idea that like we are all technically good enough at this game to be for the system to have matched us together, but at the same time, we're also trying to beat an, a group of opponents who might be literally joined at the hip they might be in the same room they might be all literally on 
like conjoined twins even that they are they are so mentally connected with each other and we're five random strangers but the fact that like if we can come together and face adversity and like when we're down pick each other up and help each other and win the game that's what makes dota as an example for super memorable some of my best gaming experience have come through that and a lot of the times you know if you go back to those epic adventures came from games that we should not have won you know no one wants to hear the story of the time when the five of us absolutely thumped the other team 70-0 and won in five minutes like boring Ooh, but the time when we were down 70-0 and the one guy like disconnected for five minutes so only four of us and we managed to turn it around and win the last second those are the stories you remember yeah um, and gaming gaming gets lets you do that in spades like there's so many opportunities to have those epic moments and there's a parallel there with business because you've always got competitors in the market. Mm. Uh, you're five people sitting in a boardroom versus five other people sitting in five other boardrooms selling into the same market. Mm. You don't fully know what their strategy is, but you've got to come up with your best play, your yeah. best next best game play. And uh, yeah, so, so for you in business, mm. you know, let's take Gareth the businessman how has your experience as a gamer helped you? Look, I think it's super obvious at the moment that I'm in the gaming industry because of obviously knowledge and relatability, because of the fact that like when you are in a room and you are obviously the mix of suits and creatives, if you can speak, you know, talk the talk and you know about games and, but not even like in a generic sense, you know, the nuanced, uh, and especially because maybe it's because of, of the type of person that I am, in terms of liking a lot of different things and for the longest time feeling like oh, i needed to specialize but more recently in my life embracing the fact that like screw it you like a lot of different games and so that means that um you know when i play one game i have a certain group of friends and i have another game another super friends uh, group of friends and i'm not the best in any group but i can play any of those games allows me in that kind of situation to be able to talk whatever if everyone's talking about dota i'm talking dota if everyone's talking fifa i've got fifa i've got value to add in any of those situations because of the variety of 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 skills and, and sure. conversation points but let's look generally mm, yeah being in business generally and the fact that you've built this portfolio of jobs stroke careers stroke meaningful experiences yeah, yeah. in general you know life hasn't unfolded in a straight line. You gave up a no. job just before your baby's birth. I mean, you know, if you were to draw a parallel here with, with perhaps something that you've learned in gaming, is it a propensity that you could take a calculated risk or yeah, that so, back yourself? Or what is it that you... So, so I think definitely um, being able to lean on my strengths of, of strategy and be able to plan things out. Uh, and and to as you mentioned, uh, I think in the the preamble to this was the the idea of mitigating risks. There've been risks along the way for sure, but you mitigate those, or you give yourself the highest percentage chance. Which I mean is like gaming one hundred and one. You know that there's what we call RNG, random number generator. There's RNG built into the system. There's a certain amount of chaos, but you are going to limit um, the fallout of that RNG. You know, and, and in business they always talk about like. Um, the risk versus impact so something might be high risk but low impact but in the same situation you might be high impact low risk but you you kind of like depending on your appetite towards these sort of things build um, a situation that kind of can can mitigate those sort of um, mm. risks for your own personal life so that's that's definitely a skill from gaming but I, I think if anything speaking about that 
the variety of experiences. Uh, certainly, if I think about the interview for Hostum, I, I remember in the kind of last stages, you know, round three, round four, however many people they were doing on parallel, I, I remember having conversations where I go, you've asked for the following skills on your job description. You want someone five to eight years of marketing experience, yada, yada, all these things that are required of a marketing director. I have those. And I'm sure anyone who's reached a fourth stage interview also has those skills. But what I'm offering are the things that aren't on the page because you're not gonna get someone 20 years public speaking experience, X amount of years writing in the game industry, authored a book, um, has worked in supply chain and has worked as a lawyer and has done all these other things. You're likely to get someone who's a deep specialist knows marketing and that's great so maybe i'm not as good a marketer as them but i'm going to offer you a bunch of other things that they can't and i think especially in smaller companies startups even with big companies downsizing one can't afford specialists anymore why would you have 10 specialists at a specialist level salary when you can have five generalists who do an 80 percent good job as any of the specialists but can do all those jobs and they can pivot and move around and they can bring insights that aren't just okay, let's get marketing insights from marketing and let's get accounting insights from the finance team and all that, especially the idea that like good ideas don't have a job title. That the best idea, your best finance idea might come from the marketing department. You know, your best marketing idea might come from a dude on the factory floor. It's, you know, you want people to have a, a broad, like you said, T people, but like a broad experience so they can- Cross-pollinate, you know, cross-fertilize. Uh, you know, and, and that's what collaboration is actually all about, is to pull those strengths and those ideas together um, in some way, shape or form. So I know something that happened in your personal life sure. years ago, which I, I often think about it. And I, and I wonder if your flexibility of thinking uh, was possibly uh, influenced by your gaming experience when you had that yeah. massive flood. Mm. in Cape Town and yeah. the whole place was underwater and that led to a different way of thinking about how you live mm, definitely ownership versus renting etc I mean yeah. that, that's, that's such a a now conversation yet it happened to you quite a few years ago but mm. maybe there's some links there. yeah so so I think instinctively the, the one thing that I, I think any gamer will be able to test to is just like being able to just, um, how would you call it? It's almost like being able to identify threat detection. Let's call it threat detection, where your ability to understand what is the most important threat to you at that point. So for example, I wake up and I'm ankle deep in water. I literally step out the bed. And I'm like ankle deep in water. The first thing I do for some bizarre reason is go to the electronics box, like the distribution board and switch off the electricity. Cause I'm going, if the water gets into the plug points, we, I don't know, we might all just get electrocuted. That's the first thing I think about. And then it's about, okay, cool. Like making sure we stop any more water coming in because any water we try and get out, if more is coming in, but it's the fact that like maybe two hours later while I'm sweeping the last bit of water out the floor, I finally realized what's happened. But you went into this autopilot, which I'm sure has got to be linked to gaming. We just, you're so used to an environment where like threats are coming at you but you're going like, that's the most immediate threat. That one is the biggest impact. Like sorting that like out. Triage the whole in an emergency. Yeah, 100%. And, and I, I know myself, you know, to, to coin one of Malcolm Gladwell's terms, I am a thick slicer. So I am one of the people who kind of go, give me 80% of the information. I'll make a decision and we'll course correct rather than sit 
and get, wait till we have 100%. So I'd be a better, what to say, an ER surgeon than a neurosurgeon. You don't want a neurosurgeon with 80% of the information, but you can't afford to have an ER surgeon have all the information because time is more important than, than kind of detail. So, so, so definitely that, that aspect. But like to go back to the flood, there was a moment, obviously, got Ethan in the bed, me, Megs, and, be and Ethan are all in the bed in our kind of our family bed, and just thinking like, okay, cool. So the house is dry, got everything sorted, but I'm like, what could be broken or destroyed, whatever, that I'd be like, oh, damn. And I'm like, nothing. I've got my phone, my wallet, my passport, and my family. It's like, I'm not trying to like create a hierarchy there, but like that all you can do stuff I really need. <laughs> no, like, it's all I really need. It's like, we can, cool. So tomorrow we will go rent an Airbnb because we can't live here. We will, um, you know, salvage what we can. We'll call the insurance to sort out the rest. But like you get to this point of, uh, I know that I'd already started unraveling the ownership versus um, access thing uh, for myself, but that definitely kind of steered it over a cliff where you go, I don't need to own things if I can just have access to them. And that for a lot of people is why we have Uber, Netflix, um, heck, yeah, dining in even, Spotify, all these things. Like, I, I mean, I gave away a ton of CDs, like CDs I've collected over years and years and years. And a lot of people are like, why are you giving these away? This like Nirvana, Nevermind, original, like, you know, that I had since I was like eight years old or whatever. Because it's, it's like, if I want to listen to it, I'm going to just go on Spotify and listen to it. I don't need to. I didn't even have a CD player. How the heck am I going to play it? I'm going to go into my car and play it there. And then what, I'm never going to leave this thing in my car for people to steal or get scratched or, you know, whatever. So it's like, if I want to have access to thing, I want to have access to thing. I don't need to own it, which means, you know, how often do you want to listen to a song? And you're like, oh, but the CDs, I lent it to someone. They've got it. I've got to go fetch it now. Whereas, you know, go on your phone, play it. And, and yeah, I, I think that that, certainly got me into space of just reducing the the clutter of my life I, I by no means a minimalist in terms of you know owning things i still like to have things but it's uh it definitely gets you in a different space in terms of not needing to physically possess something but just to to, to be able to have access to it well i think maybe also buying into mobility and flexibility yeah. and then being able to operate in this plug and play world is it's just a way of thinking about how we can be in the world and yeah and you've been just an interesting a really interesting person to watch to see how you've adapted to various situations in your life and I you know I think it's part because of who you are and how you're wired and if anyone wants to read the book Go Play Inside Gareth really does share his life's journey from literally the earliest of days of, of, of being a toddler right through to where he is today. And it's a fascinating account of how you get to be who you are. And so the book is not just good for getting insight into the gaming industry, but I think really looking at how to build a life of many meaningful moments and grasping opportunities and, and connecting dots really at the end of the day. And so Gareth, I, I I think we've got to the end of our conversation because you've got to go and fetch your son from school. We could talk for hours as we always <laughs> yeah, do. And uh, I just want to say what, what struck me from our conversation, because we always have this push-pull conversation, like, is gaming okay? Because I'm coming mm. at it from the 
parenting expert point of view, uh, you know, how much is too much? How much is too little? What are the boundaries? You know, all of those things. Yeah. I think, it's always the question I get asked. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's always the question, as, as is always the comment of my child wants to become a gamer. We, mm. we are thinking about gaming in such a narrow-minded way. And your book and this conversation certainly have gone a long way to expanding our understanding of what gaming is all about, what the gaming industry is all about, and the fact that there is so much that we can learn from that industry and how now, I guess, the industry is, and that it's way more than just gamers, that mm. there are many, many different uh, careers to be had in that gaming industry. And you said uh, something um, in your book, I think it's the last thing in your book, actually, it says games unite. Mm. And some of what you've said today has talked about the fact that you're in teams with people you either know or don't know, yeah, and it doesn't yeah. matter, that you gather around a common mission or a common purpose, and you figure it out. Mm. And isn't that what life is actually about, is that we we are born alone, but then we learn to collaborate and be with other people to solve the problems that we face every day and the challenges. And if life unfolded in a straight line, life would probably be boring. So pretty boring. Yeah. Sure. So Gareth, do you have any closing comments and where can our listeners find you and where can they get hold of a copy of your book, Go Play Outside? Perfect. Obviously a lot of different things that I could say, and I know we're tight for time, but I think if anything, I want to lean on an insight that my father gave me about um, when people open up back to our thing about passions. Um, when you're, you're going to have very few opportunities for, he used it as an example of kids, but when anyone will open up to you about their passion, the things they're interested in, whether it's the kid who goes, hey, dad, this is my, look at this drawing I did, or like as a teenager going, hey, dad, this is my favorite band, you want to listen to them. You have very few chances to be invited. And so don't judge what's being shown to you because I, I think that's the difference between making someone who is proud of what they do is empowered to show off and to, to embrace their passions versus the person I'm talking about at the dinner party who's timid, doesn't want to, you know, give off the thing that they're interested in is, is, is potentially socially awkward or, or kind of like, you know, something that you shouldn't be interested in. And a lot of that comes from, I believe, parents who, we're showing that artwork and, oh, that's stupid. You're wasting your time. Or listen to this music. Oh, what's this trash? And that kind of judgment. Because then they wonder why they weren't invited to the conversation about drugs or about, you know, girls or boys or whatever. Like, because if you're judging my drawing, why the hell would I have this conversation about my awkward sexuality or drugs or whatever sort of stuff? So I, I guess it's advice, you know, mostly for parents, but I guess in people in general, when people open up, in terms of their passions, you know, whether it's gaming, music, anything, it's just like, just be there, just listen. Um, because the thing is that not only not judging it, but like embracing gaming, for example, gaming has been an amazing gift for me in my life. But now as a parent, as a chance to like share with Ethan, to be able to play with him, to to watch him grow. And, and I mean, I'm already at the stage where like, I'm having to not let him win i'm having to fight to not lose certain games already he's five i'm terrified for what his teenage years are going to be like but um yeah it's just been an, an, an awesome experience and so yeah be open to people showing you when you know when they open the door step inside uh, in terms of finding me I'm probably most vocal on twitter i'm at the gareth woods um otherwise obviously i'm on linkedin and instant all this stuff all the same title but that's probably the my most uh, active spot 
in terms of getting the book, uh, I know it's available on most online retailers. I know Raru are running a special at the moment. So if you go there, I believe it's a little bit cheaper than normal. Otherwise, it's on Amazon, uh, on Kindle, as well as uh, print on demand if you're in a country that allows that service. I believe it's great and you get your book within 24 hours, which is amazing, which is why Jeff has spaceship money. And um, yeah, and then uh, finally, uh, if you have a bookstore that doesn't have it, badger them, tell them, why don't you have it? What kind of bookstore is this that you don't have? go play inside but yeah thanks, thanks very much for the the chance to to chat about the a subject which i can honestly talk about for hours <laughs> thanks again gareth woods and to our listeners please send through your comments questions and topic suggestions to info at nickybush.com you're invited to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too <laughs>